0: Hello, and welcome to episode 80 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me this week, uh, my guest is Martin Ingram, a PhD student in statistics, talking about a recent paper of his. Really glad to have Martin joining us and talking about some of the the nuts and bolts of more advanced forecasting techniques. Thanks a lot for coming on, Martin. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks, Jeff. Hey. (laughs) Hey. So great to have you, Martin. Uh, the the paper that prompted my invitation to have you on is it just published in the Journal of Quantitative Analysis in Sports. It's called a point-based Bayesian hierarchical model to predict the outcome of tennis matches. And those listeners who are already glazing over, I I promise, <laughs> or I, I hopefully promise that that's not a signal of what's to come. There's a lot of a lot of interesting topics that uh, that, that don't depend on your uh, level of of uh, of knowledge of Greek letters. Um, that I think you'll find, find relevant, whether you're, you're betting on tennis or just thinking about forecasting in general. I was joking with someone on Twitter yesterday that we could, we could up the number of listeners to this podcast if we called it beat the bookies. I don't know if we're (laughs) going to get that far. (laughs) um but you know maybe this could be a part of of one of those plans so uh, the first thing i wanted to ask you martin this is in the very first line of your paper um you you use the typical abbreviation of an iid model and the independent and identically distributed model that that assumes that um that every point in a tennis batch is is based on on the same inputs and can you just talk talk about what that is why it's so important in tennis analysis? And, and maybe we can start talking here about why it's not quite right as well.
1: Right. Yeah, no, this is it's a it's a really interesting question. And I think it's funny because I think uh, most people who get into tennis stats sort of stumble over the IID assumption, just this assumption and then kind of think, oh, is it, you know, try to think about it and see where it's wrong. So yeah, no, um, it's it's really kind of a, a, a much discussed thing. But yeah, so the idea is that, um, you know, if, if you started, if you wanted to model a tennis match, um, the first key thing to notice is kind of that every point, um, so every, every tennis match is combined just of points, right? Um, so there's nothing else, there's only just a sequence of points, everything is, you can kind of break it down into that atomic unit Of a point right um so um so then you think about how do you model each point and you might think the simplest thing to do is just to model each point um model the win probability for each point for each player um and that would give you a model of a tennis match you know you could you could toss a coin for every point and then see whenever the match is over um uh, so toss a coin, see the results, um, attribute the point to one or the other player depending on the on the coin toss. Um, you know, that gives you one model, but it turns out that doesn't work too well. So then the next step up is kind of to realize that there's points on serve for each player. So um, um, there's always a player serving, right? So then the IID model, uh, what it is, is it, it, it puts um, um, a probability... Whenever say John Isner serves, you know, against um, David Goffin or whatever, um, John Isner has a 85% probability of winning a point on his serve because um, he's a great server, and Goffin has maybe 82% because he's not a great server, but John Isner can't return very well. Um, so you know, so then you have those two probabilities, um, and then the IID assumption is that. Those two probabilities are constant throughout the entire match. Um, and that's kind of where, you know, you might question it, because uh, so the idea there is that it doesn't matter if Isner is, you know, five, one up, or it's the first point of the game, or it's a break point or whatever, that probability is always going to stay at, what do we say, 85%, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, that that kind of makes you wonder, is that really right? Because, you uh, Obviously, there's all sorts of other factors, points aren't equally important, right? I mean, winning a break point is much more important than winning a point when you're 40 love up. Um, so, uh, so then there's, there's been a lot of um, analysis in tennis about, um, you know, does it hold? To what extent does it hold? And basically, there's one paper that's been very influential by um, uh, people called Klaassen and Magnus, um, and they looked at some data from Wimbledon and basically found that um, it doesn't hold as, as you'd expect. So they look at things like breakpoints and things like that, um, and they find that. So it turns out when, when players are down a breakpoint, they tend to do worse on serve, um, and in general, when, when it's more important, players will do worse on serve. Um, so then, um, but it turns out that those effects aren't huge. So... Um, yeah, so, so that's why, uh, and maybe maybe to to say why people care, I mean, the thing that's really cool about the IID assumption is that you can basically derive a huge amount of things because, um, you know, you can imagine simulating lots of matches and you can count how many break points there were, how many points were played in the match, you know, what the set scores were and all that stuff. Um, so, uh so it's an assumption that you know isn't quite right, but it does give you all these other options for modeling. So that's why people kind of like it, I guess. Yeah,
0: it does. It, it makes things enormously easier. I mean, that that's right. it's it's a it's a great simplifying assumption. And, and as you say, there's evidence that it, it it doesn't hold all the time. But one, of the, I, I like that. What you the first thing you said was that. A lot of people coming to tennis have a really hard time with this. And, mm. you know, since a lot of people who come to tennis will find my non-academic work before they delve into academic work, I often get the first barrage of those questions. And I see a lot of <laughs> right. a lot of, sort of disbelief that you know, the things that commentators have always said aren't true about breakpoints or fatigue mm-hmm. or like, millions of variations, uh, mm. especially Federer's breakpoints. Uh, <laughs> so... Yeah, right. So yeah, the, the, I think that the range of belief goes from like the pure IID model all the way up to mm-hmm. l- let's call it the McEnroe model, where the, the, <laughs> yeah, right, right. the, the commentator <laughs> thinks matters. like yeah everything matters. And mm-hmm. I, I, it's important to recognize the the limitations of the the IID model, but at the same time, if you're if if you're new to this stuff, like the IID model is way better than the Mackinac right. model. Most of the stuff you hear right. in the Mackinac right. model is is not useful at all. Like the, I mean, the theory that the first point in the game really matters, or
1: right. lots, lots of stuff That's like that. So interesting, right? Yeah, because because there are so many tropes, and um, some of them hold, you know, but but a lot of them don't, like you say, and um, or don't really matter. Um, also, like yeah, serving first in a set, right? It's like right. I don't remember I haven't looked into it too much but you know there's maybe a tiny effect in the fifth or something right I know you've, you've looked at this right but yeah so um, yeah well um, and when there
0: it, it, when there it, I think it's important to distinguish between whether whether there's an effect and what the effect is because there's a lot of things like this that there's no effect I mean it's just somebody made it up uh, right I mean, I don't want to attribute malice to these, these people who are talking right, about it like they made it up because they <laughs> thought they recognized a pattern. But I mean, humans are good at recognizing patterns even when they don't exist. But when there are effects, they're small. I mean, that's something. if you if those of you who read my decidedly non-academic blog, like you do, one of the ongoing themes is, OK, there's something here. But it's so tiny that like in terms mm-hmm. of watching tennis, enjoying the sport, like it basically doesn't matter. Like, right. Server is not doing as well during tie breaks. It's a thing. It it does affect mm. uh, predictions, but it's it's not like Isner goes from eighty five to sixty five. <laughs> Isner goes right. from eighty five to I don't know eighty four probably. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Mm.
0: So one of the aspects of your paper is is you refer to a a, a random walk, and it it doesn't exactly change the the iid assumption because you stick you stick with the mm. iid assumption, but it does it does change how the modeling works. So can, can you talk about that random walk component and how that works?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's actually um, a pretty intuitive idea. It's just, um, um, so the IED model, like you say, uh, I'm not touching that in that mo- in that paper, um, but the IED model, it needs inputs, right? It needs those two um, win probabilities on serve. Um, so then the whole paper is basically about how do we model those, um, when probabilities well and um, and the random walk part is is basically what handles the time dependence um, so the idea there is that uh there's these latent so these hidden skills um which are two of the greek letters uh alpha <laughs> and beta um so that's two down uh, i don't know why statisticians love greek letters but I, it's just the thing um and uh so um so then those, um, so the simplest thing, right, is to assume that they're just constant, so players serve and return skills. If you imagine you could, you could, you know, have some device and measure isn't a serve skill or something, um, you know, uh, they it, it would probably be similar over time, right, but it, it would change slowly, probably, right? Um, so that's the idea with a random walk, is that from one period to the next, and I consider a bunch of periods, but I think the ones I end up with are two months. Um, So um, the serve skill two months ago is the same, uh, sorry, the serve skill now is the same as two months ago, plus a little bit of noise. And that's the random walk. So there's a random step slightly up or slightly down. um, So yeah, so players get slightly worse or slightly better. And that's, that's the, um, that's what's called a prior. So um, so that's just our, our prior belief before seeing data. We're prepared to maybe revise our estimate up or down a little bit based on what we've seen. Um, so yeah, does that answer your question? I guess.
0: Yeah. So so what's the what's the benefit of the noise? Like I, I understand uh, that that if you would revise your estimate at, 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 periodically, whatever that period is. Uh, mm. And that 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 will change based on new data you have coming in, but it, it doesn't seem intuitive to me why. At I mean, generally you want to take the noise out. <laughs> so right. why is it helpful to add noise in?
1: Uh, I see what you're saying. So that's um, I guess what you uh, what you have to um distinguish, I guess, is so so this is this is all this Bayesian stuff, right? And and in a Bayesian model, you have sort of two components, um, and one is the prior. So that's just before you see any data. Um, and so adding the noise to the prior, so it's sort of, our, you know, if we haven't seen a player for two months, and you, you know, if someone asks you how much uh, how much has a player changed given to two months ago, you might have a really good idea of what that player was like two months ago. But now, you know, maybe something has happened, right? Maybe John Isner has fallen over. I don't know why I keep, using john Isner. (laughs) Um, i do it too it's
0: it's really hard to think about this stuff without coming back to isner all the time he's just so
1: interesting (laughs) yeah um so um anyway but you know you know i mean it's kind of like um things could have happened right so hence you know the idea is that if, if you're not as confident without seeing any data you're not as confident as you were before and so then you're prepared, if you see the data, to revise your belief a bit more. Um, so the noise really just comes in, um, if we didn't add the noise, then we'd just make very, sm- so the noise basically drives, it's kind of like the K-factor in ELO, you know? Um, it's like, if you if you up the K-factor in ELO, that's basically the same as like adding noise, because then you're saying, well, we're less certain, we want to make bigger adjustments um, because, you know time has passed so so that's the sort of um idea there i guess
0: okay um mm-hmm. so one more kind of technical question and just to get these out of the way um so mm-hmm. it, it baked right into the the title of your paper it's a it's a bayesian hierarchical model and you started talking mm-hmm. a little bit about about what what bayes is doing for you here but um but this is not something i'm Familiar with? I'm guessing mm-hmm. 99% of my seven listeners uh, are not familiar <laughs> with Bayesian hierarchical models. Uh, right. I I swore on Twitter yesterday that I was going to stop making jokes about having only seven listeners. I swear <laughs> we have at least nine. And, uh, <laughs> so that's just wanted to clear that up. So uh, so okay, Martin, what is hopefully in in layman-ish terms? Okay. Can you can you explain what a Bayesian hierarchical model is?
1: Yeah yeah. Um... Uh, so, so yeah, I was thinking about how to how to um, make this intuitive. Uh, it it can, so <clears throat> basically the idea is so maybe it's it's good to think about the motivation of why we we need it in the first place. So, uh, I mean, uh, if if you fit these models and you don't do this hierarchical model, which I'm going to talk about a bit, um, what can happen is if you have very few observations for a player. Um, that you get weird estimates, right? Um, so, I think I had one player, um, do you know Jose Statham? Um, yeah. He's like a, a New Zealand player, I guess, I think. Um, and he turned up, you know, one of these model fits where I wasn't doing this hierarchy idea um, to, I think, be third best server on the circuit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I was like, hmm, you know, that, that doesn't seem quite right. Um, and so, what had happened is that um, he had, I think, one or two matches in the data set, and he happened to do really well in both of them. Um, so then if you just uh, fit a model uh, just in a straightforward way, you know, the model doesn't have a way of telling, well, this player played really well twice, so he's probably really good, right? Um, so the idea with a hierarchical model is kind of to... Um, to also model the range of skills. Um, and so uh, it's extremely unlikely, right, if we if we see some new player, that they're going to be as good as um, Karlovic. Didn't say is isn't it? <laughs> Karlovic, right? Or whoever. Uh, uh, clever. Um, or I don't know if it's like, uh, you know, Djokovic or whatever. Um, so it's really unlikely, right, that um, if you just see some random player, um, so, uh, so if we, so that's where this sort of Bayesian prior idea comes in. So the prior belief is kind of our initial belief before we see anything, and so you know it takes quite some, quite a lot of data probably for us to be convinced that this person really is as good a server as Karlovich or something, right? Um, so that's what the hierarchical model basically does. It kind of it, it learns this prior, so it kind of works out well how what kind of a range in skill is there among players, and given that range, um, how much data would we need to actually believe, you know, that a player is is extremely good. Um, so um, again, you know, Elo is kind of similar because um, you. Uh, um, you need a lot of matches, right, to get up to a K value of 2,000 or whatever. So it's not. Um, it kind of provides this shrinkage, is what it's called. So like it like makes small updates if it doesn't have a lot of information, I guess. That's the idea.
0: So comparing mm-hmm. it to, to mm-hmm. Elo, I mean they're they're both they're, they're both mm-hmm. built on this sort of Bayesian intuition that that we we have some we have some prior like if if a if a player appears out of nowhere and plays in Auckland Qualies like we're going to assume they aren't very good until Quiet. proven otherwise. We don't just assume they're average, which is what a lot of of models would mm-hmm. do. Um mm-hmm. but it sounds like one of the differences is I mean if if you're if you're me hacking around on Elo then you pick the prior. Like I, I I, wrote a big, long introduction to how tennis elo works and I, I said what they are. And, you know, right. over the course of testing various methods, I've changed what the numbers are as I incorporated more data because, you know, someone who's entering Auckland qualies is probably better or worse than someone who plays their first professional match at a ITF in Dubai or something. Um, so depending on what data we're including, the prior for a totally new player is going to be different. But still, like, as the analysts, I have to come up with that number. Uh, I mean, I guess there, there's probably ways to, to build a whole system to, to have it spit out what that number should be. But that sounds like one of the differences that your model is is giving you the prior rather than the other way around. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's that's sort of one way um, to think about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, it's still good to put in, you know, the prior information, like, like you say. For example, I don't think... Um, I, I wouldn't be learning say that you, the, a challenger level player starting off with is is worse. Um, this also makes the assumption that you know they're just average to start with. Um, so I think that's a great addition. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. still. Um, but yeah, like you say, the what I guess I'm I'm learning here would be um, a little bit like the K factor in Elo or like so yeah the like. Um, this this range of of accept of like player skills that's kind of inferred along with everything else. Um, so uh, so yeah, I guess some some of the things are, are like automated. Um, uh, and and I guess another nice thing is the um, so you know with Elo you kind of have the K factor, um, but uh, here you can include things like surface effects and uh, tournament effects, and they have the same hierarchical thing. You know where then they also only shift a little bit when there's not a lot of data and so on. Um, so, so it's quite extensible, I guess. Uh,
0: yeah, that's one thing that struck me is you, you, you get it's, it's a relatively short paper. I mean, there's, I think it's, it's 13 pages in the PDF I have, and it, but you get a lot of mileage out of it. So we have tables on, you know, the players that are at extremes on different surfaces. You have a, a page displaying. Uh, tournament intercepts for every tournament in the, the season and one thing that struck me is one of those one of those tables I think it was the worst hardcore players included Jabor Mohamed mm-hmm. Ali Mutawa who's not exactly a household name in the tennis world but but he's sort of the <laughs> flip side of, of Jose Statum right like for, for Jose mm. Statum is a problem in in a model if it spits if it looks at two good matches and says this guy mm. is as good as Djokovic like that's obviously wrong but if you have a model that sees what i'm guessing is one maybe two matches from Jabbar Muhammad Ali Mutawa and mm-hmm. says he's the worst on tour like mm that's not necessarily wrong. So I mean, it, it looks mm. like you're able to use a, a, a pretty small amount of data and and make, I don't know whether we'd say a dramatic conclusion, but I mean, let's mm-hmm. say a, a dramatic conclusion that based on very little data, this guy obviously
1: isn't good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess he must have been really bad in the in the few matches he played. Um, and, and, I mean, also, I actually have the table here. Um, I guess his, you do notice his sort of uncertainty intervals are a bit bigger. So that's the other way, I guess, Bayesian models deal with that. They kind of handle small data sets gracefully because, you know, they'll just have a big uncertainty interval. And then that sort of um, helps to kind of, you know, keep things reasonable, I guess. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I do. Uh, just looking at the sort of results I got from from these models, they do tend to mostly make sense, I mean, at least when I, to my eyes, uh, which is kind of nice, you get fewer of these outliers, I think, like you say. Uh, it, is, it is, so I guess what I'm wondering is, is this, a,
0: is this a feature or a bug? And I mean, one way, you can kind of avoid mm-hmm. the question the way you just did by saying mm-hmm. you know, that there's a big uncertainty interval here, so... I- you're not really saying anything. It's not like you're going to rush to the bookie and, and put all your money against Ali Muntawa, mm. But but you are making it, – it, it's a weak claim, but it's a, mm. let's say, an extreme claim, I guess, that uh, based mm. on what's probably just one or two matches of data, this guy really isn't good. So, I mean, mm. when you see a result like that, even a, – a, Accepting the fact that there's this uncertainty interval, is that something that you, you look back at and say maybe this model is going too extreme based on what might be one really bad match?
1: Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess it um, – I mean, it, well – I, I do think that the the inferences from these models are usually quite trustworthy. I mean, if you have something that would look very strange, right, if, if you get a clearly wrong result, then you might have to look at your model specification whether you've missed something um you know, that's just is you know Jabo Muhammad Ali Motawa somehow extremely different from all the other players you know if you get weird results it, it might tell you something that you are missing out in the model that you know is clearly um clearly hurting it um but uh but yeah i mean it it do, i'm i'm you know fairly confident in saying that i guess like given what we've seen you know his median is like pretty bad so he's it does look like he's a he's a poor hardcore player so i guess yeah i wouldn't hedge too much uh I, yeah i don't know if that answers your question but um. yeah it, it, it,
0: well it, it's kind of an ironic example too and, and <laughs> i i tend to to hammer on these these examples that are are, are vague in, in in this way because like, given all the information mm. we have on this particular guy, like not just not just from your 2014 data set, but we know he's not a very good tennis player. I, I mean, I, I didn't. I, I should have mm. looked at all his career details if since I knew I was going to ask you about this <laughs> detail. But um, but he, he's one of these guys who only plays on tour when he gets wild cards into events mm-hmm. in the golf and isn't even a challenger level player the rest of the time. So if we look at his entire career, I don't know what his elo is, but I'm guessing it's bad, maybe even triple digit bad. So this is not a good tennis player. On the right. other hand, like your model has already recognized he's not a good tennis player based on, let's say, two two of those matches, which right. is, is either impressive or it means that that it's a model that overreacts to a couple of 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 really bad results and the reason why I'm I'm so curious about this is you know I've mm-hmm. I've tinkered with various ways of of using individual match results to look at head to heads or building ranking systems or or rating systems or whatever and these sort of matches really lopsided matches tend to be problematic like if you have mm-hmm. a match like a let's just say a 6061 match which i think one of mm-hmm. uh, mutawa's was mm-hmm. then yes it could tell you that the loser is very bad but 6061 mm-hmm. mm-hmm. could also be federer murray at the world tour finals wow. and we're not about to say andy murray is really bad so I, I think that if if you if you know nothing about the players except that they're on tour then mm-hmm the loser of a 6061 match probably isn't that bad. There's something about that match that is
1: yeah. not that trustworthy. So that's a good point, that's a good one. So that's something this model wouldn't take into account. I mean, it. so actually it, um, so the um, the way it updates, right, is it kind of, it looks at the, um, yeah, the you know, the percentage of points won on, on serve, and it wouldn't, it doesn't make any assumptions about, say, uh, yeah, I got injured, you know, halfway through the set, that, lanes six love six one score it would it would just take it you know as as it is I guess um uh, so yeah I mean I guess if you if you noticed uh that yeah as a result of matches like that the estimates are getting untrustworthy right then you would I mean, there there are ways you could you could probably incorporate it, but it, yeah, it's always like a choice, right? You know, what do you put into the model? What what do you not um, put in? I guess. Um, right. I mean, maybe I guess, one more thing I'd say. About, oh yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, uh, just one more thing about Mutawa. I mean, um, one thing to mention I think is as well that uh, so that's just his his hard court offset, right? So it's like he's not necessarily the worst player on hard court. It's just that. It looks like he's worse on hard court than he is on all the other surfaces by a fair bit of, of, of a margin um, so It might be that you know, there's a few matches in the days and he actually won a few on grass or something But he uh, he lost all of his matches on on hard. So it kind of Makes that call I guess but yeah well, um, I'm curious what? Uh, Oh, this isn't good.
0: I just was checking on Tennis Abstract for what? And maybe there's a different guy. I'm <laughs> only seeing ITFs for him in 2014, which oh, might okay. be something that's missing from my database. So scratch okay. my follow-up question. I mean, I, I think he only played um, like Doha and Dubai or something like that, um, mm. which which means he didn't play on any other surfaces. Okay. So does sure. that does that make sense? I mean, what, what does that mean then if, if you only have hardcore data for a player what what is the offset telling you
1: yeah so then i guess what happens is that you know there's two competing explanations um because you haven't seen him play on any other surfaces so there's two explanations one is oh he's just bad on hardcore or the other explanation is oh he's um he's a bad player all around right and in the absence i guess of any any other information like it kind of splits Splits the results on both, and um, in, in like the Bayesian way, you know, um, it, it kind of um, you know uses Bayes rule, I guess, to make that decision. Um, so uh, so yeah, it'll it'll allocate them, I guess, in on both on both those. Uh, so yeah, that's what happens, I guess. Okay. Um, but it's a good point. I mean, I take your point. It's like there, there might, they definitely, it's definitely possible that there's things in there that you know, fun idea. Like I guess the the Bayesian update rule should give you reasonable results. You know, there's all these proofs about it being being the optimal rule or whatever. Um, but you do have to, you know, give it the right model. So it, it's totally possible that there's things in there that should be included too. Um, and yeah, maybe Mutawa shouldn't be there. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's what
0: makes it so interesting to me is that. It, it, I think he should be. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. at some general level, it's right to say that this guy probably was the worst hardcore player who appeared in a tour level match that year. Um, th- it's more about whether the whether the data that you're working with is telling us that. Um, but it, it it is ironic that after a, after talking on Twitter last night about how putting the word Federer in the name of a podcast episode like pretty much doubles the listenership, we're yeah. choosing to focus <laughs> on Jabur Mohammed Ali Tawa. <laughs> So, so all of our listeners in, in Qatar, um, thanks for listening. Both of you. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll make player fun player. of your other player next week.
1: He just doesn't like hard courts. He's great. He's, uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah, a, a, according to this model,
0: he's a perfectly credible grass and clay court player. <laughs> um, so, okay, I, I promised that I, I wanted okay. to get some of the technical stuff. Under our belt and, and
1: not spend the whole time talking about that. And yes, so, so, sorry, just yeah. to just to clarify, um, he's not. Uh, so the model isn't estimating him to be the worst hardcore player. Um, it's saying that he's just worse on hard relative to his other surfaces. Um, but yeah, but but it, probably enough. <laughs> without seeing
0: without seeing <laughs> the entirety of your data, wouldn't isn't that going to put him pretty close to the bottom overall? I mean, um, whatever his that's definitely possible.
1: Yeah, 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 good
0: point. Okay, I mean, I was I was just inferring that, but that's that's probably unfair to okay, our tennis fans, our podcast <laughs> listeners in the Middle East. So, <laughs> exactly. that's probably much <laughs> that's closer okay. to the the median, <laughs> at least with the data available. Right. Uh, so, okay, you, you mentioned several several segments ago that one of the advantages of of your of uh, the model you're using here over Elo is that it allows you to incorporate uh, a lot more inputs. So for instance, you're um, you're using each player's serve and return uh, stats, so you're building estimates for for how they serve and return. You're you've got this surface offset which we've now talked about extensively and you also have have tournament intercepts. So, can you talk about exactly how well, exactly how it's kind of loaded? But can, can you talk about how, what goes into those? Like what what the data is that's that's allowing you to to make these updates with each match? Ah, so where I got the data from, you mean? Well, not just where you got the data, but what what exactly you're using um, for the model. I mean, for Elo, we know it's just match results. I mean, I have some hacks to uh-huh. to use more data but but as you say like one of the advantages here is you're able to use a lot more um so what is it that you're able to incorporate in this model that presumably Mm -hmm. contributes to making it more effective
1: i mean um you know in principle you could put in uh whatever you like um what i was using in the paper is pretty simple it's really just um it's 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 available most places um i mean it's basically just you know the um the uh a uh, number of points played on serve for each player in each match. Um, so that would be you know, the sum of their first serves and second serves. Um, and the number of points they won um, out of those on their serve. Um, then you need to know the tournament name. Uh, so you need to know which tournament that, that match was played at. You need to know the time of the match um, and the surface. And that's actually it. Yeah. So there's no, I mean, you know, in principle, you could add a lot more, Um, but, uh, but that's just what I used in the paper. So nothing too fancy, I think. And by time, you just mean the date, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay. I was curious to find out about this model that incorporated match duration somehow, but uh, uh, you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that hasn't been done yet, unfortunately. Yeah. But that, but Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, and, and the goal here is like, rather than, r- rather than just coming up with, with estimates for like a single number for every player, y- you have sort of running estimates of each player's serve and return skills. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so, so that's what you get. And, um, so yeah, I think, I think what's probably, um, what worked out quite well with this model, right, is, uh, I mean, you do get a lot of information about, you know, the tournament intercepts, the player skills and stuff like that. So so that's sort of the thing you, you get, yeah. And turn, uh,
0: tournament intercepts, like this is a, a slightly technical way of saying, you're basically mm-hmm. just talking about surface speed as it affects. Yeah,
1: surface, yeah, I know, it's a spot. very... The contentious topic right? I know you you look at that a lot uh, and uh, people love to debate surface speed don't they um but uh, yeah uh it's one way I guess you could try to get at it yeah and
0: I I, I didn't look closely um I, I yeah. sort of intended to to look more closely at how your intercepts compared to to my numbers. I I, I know right. I've got my 2014 numbers published somewhere, but there were definitely mm-hmm. some similarities. Like in yeah. mine, Monte Carlo is always right at the bottom. Uh, some of the other, some of the same clay court tournaments appear at the bottom of the list. And then Indian Wells is always one yeah. of the slowest hard courts with Miami right, right around the same level. So I, I think it, it differs more at the very top. I've usually got the grass mm-hmm. court tournaments a, a bit lower, but I'm, I'm using mm-hmm. aces, not not serve points one, which might explain part of that. But that that's interesting. I mean, the, the, I think our our approaches could hardly be more difficult or difficult be more different. Yours is more right. difficult. Um, but we're. we're I mean, it, it's a sort of vote of confidence <laughs> in both methods. I think that we're arriving right. at pretty much the same numbers that hopefully agree with uh, with our eyeballs.
1: Yeah, that's always a good sign, right? If you if you have multiple, I guess similar um, results a bit more confidence i guess so well, that's i'm glad to hear that got it, sort of passes the, the snip test at least in the yeah, first class. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so okay one of the things that you, oh i'm jumping one step ahead in my my questions here so saving that one for a little later um mm-hmm. if you were to add more data i mean we're, we're talking about this being pretty basic in terms of what what you're incorporating mm-hmm. if you did add more data what would you try next.
1: Mm. Uh, good question. Um yeah, what what could you add? I mean, I guess a few things. Well, so one thing I think uh would definitely be a good idea would be some uh, injury adjustment um which um uh yeah. So so this model doesn't um doesn't do injury adjustments and uh, well, I, I mean one thing it does do is it kind of, um, you know, the, this random walk thing means that the uncertainty grows over time. So, uh, you know, updates would get would get bigger if a player misses some time. So, so it does that, but it doesn't correct anyone downwards, for example. Um, so that that would be a nice thing to add. Um, and uh, I mean, other things people talk about, right, would be things like head-to-head effects. Um, uh, I think it would be nice to to look into some style things. Uh, not that I've really looked into it much, but that would be something you know the MCP would be pretty great for, right? You could like try to give people like style style categories, I right? Because people talk about matchups so much. Um, so uh, so yeah, I guess those are some some ideas. Um, yeah, I'd,
0: I'd be more interested in looking at matchups if the people who talked about it didn't always tweet at me in all caps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm willing, I'm willing to go along to a certain point that, that there's something to matchups, but generally that's that's my sort of indication of the level of discourse we're at. Um, but okay, that, that, that one other thing, or not just one, but one thing specific thing you mentioned in the paper that I wanted to ask you about along these lines is you make sort of a passing reference to using surface using surface skills to predict skills on other surfaces. Like if someone's oh, good on clay, they're probably not as good on hard um, yeah. to, to some level of confidence. Can you explain how that would work?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, these, the, the Bayesian models, they're all about sort of mo- putting in your, your um, prior belief. Right. And, and so, so, you could end you know the hierarchical idea right is that you do it for just serve skill or return skill, but you can also model I guess a, a correlation among those so you could you could learn this prior you know this basically just like you say, you know you could infer that well if, if so you know if you tell me there's this new player and they're just smashing in on the play court circuit, you know. And that probably tells you two things, right? One is that they're a good player because they're winning matches. But it also tells you that, um, you know, they're winning all these matches on clay. Um, so maybe, you know, you're, you're, if somebody tells you only that, you would think, ah, oh, they're good, but, well, probably given all the other things we know about clay players, they're worse on on grass. So, um, um, so yeah, you basically, in, in the model, you would add this, a correlation. At the moment they're independent, but you could add a correlation and then um it would it would do that for you, I guess. Yeah, that's
0: that's interesting. I never I never thought about incorporating that in, into a model, but it does make a lot of sense. And I think you you describe it well how the intuition works. That I mean if if mm-hmm. I don't know, a lot of people heard about Laszlo Gera for the first time when he I want to say he won Rio de Janeiro. That might be the wrong tournament or the wrong result in the final, but he had his big breakthrough in February this year. And mm-hmm. I think most fans didn't didn't know much about him before. And yeah, when when, when someone like that shows up and has their first big result uh, on a clay court, then you, you don't want to say they're bad on a hard, hard court, but you assume they're a clay court specialist. Um, right. And that will... Uh, that, I think that gives you a little bit more of an assumption about what their hardcore skills are going to be, or at least what they're, in your terms, what a hardcore offset would look like. Uh right. The more I, the more I think about it, the, the messier it gets. But um, but I guess that's what yeah. the models for. I don't have to think it all through.
1: That's. That's the thing I like. Uh, I mean, yeah, when I came across these these sort of um, models, is that you you have this you have these ideas, and you can let the model work out the details. Um, so that, that's kind of neat. Um, yeah, uh, I guess you mentioned more data. I think one thing that is really a a, um, a thing I've been wanting to work on is to make these things faster. You know, because um, because this approach, I, I, you know, it's really great. You can put in everything you want, you know, and and it gives you reasonable results and stuff. But, um, but it does take a while. So, um, so that's that's one thing. Uh, but um, but yeah, just just in terms of sort of being able to fit models that you want to fit, it, it's quite a nice framework, I think. And part
0: of the reason this takes so long is it this is is this a Monte Carlo? Uh, yeah.
1: Markov chain Monte Carlo, yeah. So, yeah. So
0: you're um, you're running these, I don't know, how how many thousands or millions of times?
1: Uh, yeah, it's probably. I mean, it's four thousand samples you get in the end, but each one involves lots of computational steps. So, uh, probably hundreds of thousands of calculations um, going on. Yeah. Yeah. So that that sounds pretty uh, computation intensive.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um so uh, which is the, the opposite direction of what I wanted to ask you about next is uh, looping back yeah. to where we started we were talking about what what non iid assumptions are are accurate or useful and you mentioned that in the in the close of your paper you talk about some of the some of the things there that that might be incorporated into a future model i mean it, is it is it possible in, in within the constraints of a model like this to incorporate something like clutch or fatigue or even a simple thing like players serve worse in tie breaks? Is, is, can mm. that
1: go in the soup? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, maybe the way, the way it's set up there, it would probably be tricky because, um, you know, you want a few years of data and any change like that, basically what it boils down to is that you have the summary, you have the summaries for the match, right, which are, you know, points won on serve versus points played on serve. As soon as you start introducing non-ID effects, um, you can't have those simple summaries anymore, right, because now all the points are different, right? So, so um, I mean, I could imagine maybe a middle ground where you, uh, you might model um, – you could model service games and tie breaks separately or something, you know, like some sort of intermediate level between the the full on summary and then the full point level, which, you know, as, as I'm, as you know, right, it gets into millions of points pretty quickly. Um, so, uh, or, you know, what, what I'm curious about as well is, is um, approximate methods. So you, you don't, fit the full-on model. So this thing is meant to give you the exact sort of Bayesian answer um, if you run it long enough, with, yeah, which, which it usually does. Um, but, you know, you, you can make some assumptions um, and then things get quicker. But, yeah, uh, that's another sort of route.
0: So uh, the the Monte Carlo aspect of, of your model as it is now, mm-hmm. it's, it's running it, it, every computation is, is Sort of one run of a match, right? So you're, you're running you're running seasons and generating ratings uh-huh. thousands of times. You're not, it's not actually
1: going point by point. Right. I see what you say. No, right, right. Sorry. So so it's a bit confusing. This um the Monte Carlo aspect, that's the slow bit, is is not to do with the the match simulation. Okay. Um, it's actually to do with um getting these estimates. You know the uh, the the uncertainty intervals. Um, the sort of hierarchical modeling bits, um, learning the prior, all all that stuff. Um, that's, and it uses a thing called, uh, Markov chain Monte Carlo, which is a Monte Carlo method, but it's a bit sort of, it's sort of a statsy thing. Um, the, the nice thing about it is that you, you know, you can write down the model and it'll just do it. You don't have to, you know, think a lot about all the details of, um, uh, of the model, but, um, but it, it, it is usually a bit slow. <laughs> so, um yeah. Yeah, I can see how that would that would spiral out of control
0: once you incorporate the, the within match variables as well. And I mean of course once you mm. start it's it's tough to know where to stop with all the non-IAD right. assumptions you could bake in. Mm-hmm. Um So let's see. I almost forgot. I I put too many blank spaces in my in my notes here. So I I forgot Mm -hmm. I have a couple questions from uh, from readers, listeners, I guess. I guess listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, Eric Jonsson asked if there were any players who were statistical outliers and that their matches were particularly hard to predict. Is that is that sort of unpredictability something that your model can get at?
1: That's a really great question. Uh, not, I'm not sh- well. This one maybe not so much. Uh, I think you have to do it in a derived way. I mean, I haven't really thought about. I did think about a little bit, yeah, about how you might put it into the model, but I haven't, I haven't really had a great solution. Um, what I have looked at actually today. I saw that question as well, and I did uh, look at um, uh, one of the models I fit recently. It's a bit different, but just I was curious, you know, which players are, like, hardest to predict. Uh, and I do have a few. Let's, let's see if I can find them. I think um, I think Vadasco came up. Uh, yeah, Vadasco is hard to predict. Luka, Pui, Rublev, Kyrgios, uh, Sousa, Fritz, TFO, Toric. So just a few there that all have, like, uh, pretty poor predictions. like... The last few years, so um, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, I mean, and I guess there's there's two there's two directions
0: you take that question. One is just Mm. is is what you did, and and generating a list of who 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 resulted in bad predictions I guess mm-hmm. but the other mm-hmm. way to think about it is whether there's that's something that itself can be incorporated in the model if there's someone who's just yeah. inherently yeah. not that predictable and I've I've right. looked at that before in in a, probably a pretty hacky way but um uh, mm-hmm. and not really found that, that there are players who are consistently unpredictable i think maybe mm-hmm. some of the players you mentioned are ones who have had sharp up or downturns um, right, and you i guess there, there's multiple ways you can be unpredictable if, you, if you're just bad all of a sudden that's not right. what we normally think of as unpredictable but if you compare right, yeah. model predictions to results then you are going to come up as unpredictable just because you're unpredictable you're
1: surprisingly bad um, yeah. yeah but i mean yeah, it, like murray comes to mind right when he um things like that right if you don't adjust um yeah yeah that's uh, i mean it is if if it
0: did turn out to be an effect that there were some players mm-hmm. who who were unpredictable in in both the mm-hmm. positive and negative directions and, and and you mentioned Kyrgios in your list like if if there's mm-hmm. a player who fits this description it's probably him um <laughs> is that something that you could bake into the model
1: yeah so, so actually, I was thinking about it. I'm I'm not entirely sure what you would do so one thing right would be you might um i mean you know i, I guess it's tricky right cuz like I mean, you could you could in, increase their sort of uh, random walk over time, right? So you could say, ah, well, maybe you know we're prepared to correct them or as a result of a match. Um, but then the, it goes both ways, right? They're unpredictable, so you might not want to shift them too much um, the other way. Uh, I mean, I guess one extension might be to have player-specific um, random walks, uh, so, so then you might um, you might have the model decide, right? You might say, well, you know, um, we think results from these um, either, you know, we should react to them more or less, um, you know, have the model decide. Uh, so that might be something you could try. Um, but, I mean, in a way, maybe it's also just difficult because, you know, they are just more unpredictable, so... you know what are you gonna do (laughs) right
0: it's it it seem it it it, yeah it seems like maybe that would be coming at the 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 problem from the wrong direction i mean it it, Mm. like you say if they are unpredictable then trying to get your model to predict them better is like that's that's not how it works right (laughs) Um, right so, so maybe the answer is just to i mean it's if you just took what the model spit out and regressed it back to 50% or back to some, some number. And I mean, I mean, that I think that's the intuition when, when we're saying someone's unpredictable, it's saying whatever, whatever their prior um, prior skill demonstration or whatever, what the, what, what the evidence shows us, it's not as indicative as it is for other players.
1: Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, you could try that. Um, I guess. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, so let's see, uh, Eric also asked if, if the assumption that grass matches are harder to predict is true. And you, mm-hmm. you mentioned in in your paper, you have, you have the data from each, from your data set that it's 10% of matches. So you don't have a lot of, of grass mm-hmm. court data to work with. I mean, did you find that they were, that the, the, the predictions were
1: less accurate? Um, well, I mean, I don't quite remember exactly for that data set in the paper but I did look uh more recent data and um uh I mean well there's a few things one one thing is that if I looked at it initially and actually um it it looked the opposite way like grass court matches were quite predictable um but then you've got to be careful right because a lot of grass matches are Wimbledon and um so there's our best of five, right? Uh, so, and typically best of five is more predictable than best of three. Uh, so um, so once you take that into account, uh, basically, yeah, not really. I, I it, it looks like, um, uh, yeah, grass uh, in general is, is not that different. Clay can be tricky, uh, I think, is more the one that would come to mind. But um, yeah, I mean, grass is, sense right that the, the period the the season is short uh, so you've got to do some kind of surface adjustment but i think once you do that at least in my experience it hasn't been too bad hey,
0: You, I, i've never experimented with this myself but i've always thought about like, something that we talked about earlier that like maybe that's a place where they where it would be valuable to use skills on other surfaces like yeah even, maybe you'd find that it it seems logical that the grass would correlate more with hardcore than with clay. So maybe that would give you sort of a, a a guesstimate of what a grass court adjustment should be before any grass court matches are played.
1: Right. exactly. Yeah. Good point.
0: (laughs) Okay. So what one last sort of big topic I wanted to talk about, I'm I'm curious what you think about this because (laughs) um i mean as as we've established both from my introduction and from your knowledge about this stuff you are an academic you're not purely focused on on generating interesting stuff about tennis for tennis fans um mm-hmm. but this is not your first tennis paper and and i know from you know other conversations with you that you're you're a fan um mm-hmm. And what's clear from both from the paper and talking to you is you bring a fair amount of domain knowledge to this. It's mm-hmm. not like you just saw some tennis data one day. And it's like, oh, there's a tennis data set. Let's try to fit a mixed bottle and see what happens. <laughs> um, and I I haven't looked at all the academic work on tennis. I mean, it's a pretty it's a substantial mm-hmm. library now. But I mean, I think a lot of it falls into one of two categories. And one of the categories mm-hmm. is is where I think we can we can put yours in where it's someone who's interested in tennis, like built on that interest and decides to to do some statistical work on tennis because of their interest. And then the other side are the people who are not that interested in tennis, but are looking for topics for a paper. Mm. Um, and. I think the difference there, I mean, if there is a difference, it's that the fans like yourself, like there is some prior domain knowledge that goes into mm-hmm. choosing topics, deciding what models are using and just the, how you write the paper and so on. What do you think the the value is in, in having that domain knowledge when, because this is a, this is a pretty technical approach mm-hmm. you're taking. And I think some people would look at this and say, the most important thing in this paper is the fact that this guy really knows his stats uh, mm-hmm. but it's, is there more to it than that? Do you think you're you're better at writing about tennis than you would be about something else that uses this, the same sort of techniques?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure, I think. I mean, uh, yeah, I I actually, I do come across this because I, I do apply, you know, as you say, I'm, I'm an academic, I do, I'm doing a PhD, so I, I fit models to domains I don't know very much about um, and, you know, I'm learning a bit more now, but, but you know, initially, um, and, and it, it does help a lot to have some domain knowledge, also in, you know, just making sure you're on the right track, because, uh, um, you know, if, if if you pick out, I don't know, uh, like, Goffin as being the best server or something, you know, immediately you realize something is off. Um, so... Uh, so so there's there's that I think which which is really helpful is just to just to probably be a bit quicker at spotting weird things um then another thing I think is you know if if you don't have a lot of domain knowledge it can be tricky to know what's important to include in a model right um you know for example surface is just is so important if you if you know about tennis right you you're pretty sure you need to do something about surface but um you know so so you, you kind of know the sort of things you need to look at um so uh yeah those are i guess the two two main things i can i can think of um but yeah really i mean i think just being able to it's happened to me a bunch of times in my phd as well that I'll fit a kind of modeling technique to the, the PhD study data, which is usually something in ecology. And then I want to fit the same kind of model on tennis. And I do that and I spot some problem and then, you know, I fix it and then it looks good on the tennis data, And then I move back to the actual application. So it's actually been helpful for me a bunch of times uh, in that regard. So. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> so you think there would be better work being done in ecology if if more <laughs> of the statisticians were tennis fans?
1: I <laughs> um uh, sorry. If I knew more about ecology, you're saying, or
0: <laughs> if, if no? I, knew... I mean, it, it it sounds like you're. Maybe I misunderstood, but but I, I know you're. I, you, yeah, I yeah. know you're half joking about this. But if if you're going from from working on an ecology model to trying the same technique on tennis, learning something about the model via your tennis work, and then going mm-hmm. back to ecology with better knowledge of like the mm-hmm. model and maybe what having a better idea of what to do with it within the ecology domain, like maybe more more people working in ecology need to be tennis fans and have that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I like the idea. Um, well, I mean, I guess what I'd say is uh, it, it, I mean, I guess, yeah, having the domain knowledge helps if it's like, I mean, maybe if you know all about the, you know, ecology data set, you don't have to have some other uh, interest to check your model against, but um, but it definitely helps me. <laughs> so <laughs> um yeah
0: so what do you do in i mean facing these other domains that you're not like you're not really a fan of ecology i guess that that that, <laughs> that sounds that sounds more loaded than i meant it but uh, <laughs> <laughs> like i hate ecology
1: Yay, but,
0: <laughs> but if, if if you are uh, approaching a domain that you're not familiar with at all and and you're asked to to build a, a, a a model with a lot of unfamiliar inputs and and just, just sort of working in the dark in that sense. Like, how much of an effort do you put into like, building your domain knowledge, or and how do you go about doing that?
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, so uh, I mean, I guess a lot of well, one one thing you can do is just to um, what I try to do is like talk, talk to some people who do know, right? And and then the skill is basically to try to summarize your model in a way that they can look at and see whether it makes sense. Um, yeah. Or like, you know, just finding, I guess like so I I fit some stuff to bird data sets. And, um, so, you know, looking at the North American birds and looking at their maps, their expert maps and what habitat they're in or whatever, you know, that that can help. Um, so yeah, I guess just reading a bit more about it and, um, Talking to people, showing to people who do know the stuff that that typically helps. Um, yeah, I don't think I'm not sure they're quite as uh, enthusiastic as tennis fans. Like I haven't got any all caps replies about. <laughs> uh, bird well, events, there, mu- but, there must there must
0: be sort of like a toned down academic equivalent <laughs> of the all caps reply. Gotta be like yeah, super fans of the like Willett or something right out there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> there, probably, there probably are. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to kind of bring this all full circle is that I, I, I'm a huge believer in the importance of domain knowledge. And maybe that's self-serving because it's really all I have. But it's it, I, I've read a lot of a, a lot of tidbits about you know, people winning um Kaggle data science competitions by doing really nothing more than data cleaning Mm -hmm. and bringing some domain specific insight to the problem it's in those cases that can those things aren't just helpful like they they actually trump any data science sort of insights and I, I find that super interesting. Um, But on the other hand, we started out by talking about how how fans and and commentators come at tennis with all these assumptions Mm -hmm. that are wrong. So it's it's an interesting contrast that in in some ways we have to we have to sort of defer to what experts know. Maybe we should put no in quotation marks. But Mm -hmm. we should be deferring to that. But at the same time, when you reach a certain level of domain knowledge that where we're at talking about tennis in this way, then you start to throw away a lot of what the experts have to say. And, and maybe you, you get to the yeah. point where, yeah, the, the domain knowledge is, is almost more of a punching bag than. Uh, right. then
1: it's- That's a great point. I mean, I, I feel like, I guess, I guess it definitely gives you candidates, right? It's like, you all these things commentators believe in you can check right and and they give you things to look at and some of them are wrong but um but some of them are right right so it's sort of at least you have ways to look right because otherwise you have all this freedom of modeling and you're like well what what should i do right um because like you say if you do find that key thing um uh, and, well, one thing to add there, I, I did I did have a bit of that experience because I, I spent some time, I don't know whether you ever looked at the Gaussian process stuff I was doing, um, but there's sort of quite complicated models, um, and, uh, you know, they help a little bit, but it turns out that I think I added some margin things in some recent models, and that actually trumps any, like, fancier sort of time dependence you can put in. I mean, combining the two might still be a good idea, but... But yeah, so like you say, it's often it's. Um, I, I do think it's right that you know, um, just just knowing the domain and having the right idea is is often more important than like anything very fancy, I guess.
0: Well, and the the best of both worlds is 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 great too. I mean, if you have the the mm-hmm. statistical know how and you have the domain knowledge, then you know that's that presumably should give you the best results. Um, I mean, especially in a world like sports, like you're, you're talking about using uh, using what commentators believe or fans believe as a, a sort of jumping off point, even if they proved to be wrong. And that's mm. essentially what Claassen mm. and Magnus did, right? Didn't they have a list of 30 something things that they tested? Yeah, and then, that's right. Yeah. And then Stephanie Kowalczyk went and, and she, I don't know whether she went through all of them, but she went through a lot of them sort of using more recent data and sort of checking back on those on, on those findings and uh, mm. i guess that's one of the nice things about sports that attracts so many academic yeah. statisticians whatever is the, the data is there the topics are there uh, right and I'm, I'm assuming that in a lot of a, a lot of academic domains the the data is not as clear-cut the questions aren't as clear-cut yeah. certainly it, it it spirals out of control in terms of the complexity
1: mm. yeah, yeah and people don't you know people don't know about it right i mean you couldn't just talk to people about things and it's yeah it's just nice to be able to have sort of a real world examples right where it's not super abstract and stuff yeah
0: that's a that's definitely appealing so (laughs) let's wrap it up here i promised i Mm promised you an hour and as usual i've (laughs) zoomed right past that mark so martin thanks so much for coming on the show thanks jeff yeah it's fun um, so everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, this is my guest this week has been Martin Ingram, a PhD student in statistics, uh, the author of a recent paper in the Journal of Quantitative Analysis of Sports called "A Point-Based Bayesian Hierarchical Model to Predict the Outcome of Tennis Matches," which, as we learned in today's episode, is is not quite as unapproachable as all of that. So. Thanks for listening. I've been uh, Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. This is episode 80 of the Tennis Abstract podcast, and we'll see you next time.